Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There's going to be a link to a two-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10, and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 18 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. The topic of today's discussion is why companies often choose to borrow money instead of to raise capital from investors. We're going to look at the difference between equity and debt financing. Now, I've had a couple of people ask whether we're only available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. But Income Investing is also on Overcast and Player FM and CastBox and most other podcast services. You just have to search for Income Investing with Alexa Zasadi on whichever platform you use, and it should pop up. If we're not there, I would be grateful if you could just let me know by dropping a line at alexazasadi.net slash podcast. Obviously, I want to be in every possible place. So as you know, Income Investing is a podcast that's designed for people who want to make investments that generate revenue, either monthly or on a quarterly basis. Investors like you and I are drawn to these assets for a few different reasons. First, we can use the revenue to supplement or even replace our employment or business income. Second, many of them can also appreciate in value. So not only can you get paid every month, but you can also profit via a capital gain. And third, A lot of income investments can be made with a small amount of money, even as low as a few hundred dollars. And fourth, there are countless options available. There are income and dividend stocks and real estate investment trusts or REITs, mortgage, income and credit funds and peer-to-peer lending and a whole lot more. So you can diversify across geographies and economies and asset classes. So we've spent the last two months covering mortgage lending. That is, making a loan to a person or a business, and then securing that loan with real estate. The goal is to eventually build up to investments that are rooted in lending, like mortgage funds and credit funds and syndications. So we started off this segment in episode 10, where we talked about what a mortgage is exactly. Many people were surprised to discover that it's not actually a loan. Instead, a mortgage is a legal instrument that is used to secure a debt to real estate. So a loan is a loan, and a mortgage ties that loan into a property. There are two separate items. Now, a mortgage does a couple of things for a creditor. First, it makes sure that the property can't be sold without first repaying the debt. 
And second, it gives the creditor the ability to foreclose on the property if the borrower defaults on its obligations. So if the borrower stops making loan payments, for example, the lender can take possession of the real estate and then try to sell it. That way, it can attempt to recoup its funds. It is possible and quite common to have more than one mortgage on a property. And in such cases, when that property is sold, the debts have to be repaid in chronological order. The mortgage that was registered first gets paid back first, the second one gets paid back second, and so on. For that reason, the lower down on the ladder you are, the more risk there is. We also talked about an important concept in episode 10 called the loan-to-value ratio, or LTV. This expresses how much debt a piece of real estate has when compared to its value. For example, a $1 million home with a 75% LTV would have $750,000 worth of mortgages registered on it. Obviously, the higher the LTV, the greater the risk is for lenders. Episode number 11 focused on how mortgage loans are investments. We talked about the different ways that lenders can earn money from them. That includes charging interest, origination fees, and late payment penalties. Moreover, the borrower will usually be required to reimburse the lender for all of its legal expenses. Episode 12 outlines some of the main risks of mortgage lending. They include default risk, origination risk, and liquidity risk. The last one, liquidity risk, refers to the fact that mortgage loans, which usually come in the form of loan agreements and promissory notes, can be quite difficult for retail investors to sell. Episodes 13 and 14 discussed how lenders can manage those risks. And from there, we explored a place called the debt market, which took us into episode number 15. In that episode, we found that the debt market is a place where investors can buy and sell loan contracts. This can give them access to liquidity, but it also means that the price of these contracts can fluctuate based on supply and demand. We saw that loans of all sorts can trade on the debt market, including mortgages, bonds, and even consumer financing agreements. In episode 16, we looked at the power of central banks, like the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada. We saw how they can manipulate interest rates, which can cause the economy to either heat up or cool down or sort of stay the same. Central banks are particularly important to income investors because they can affect the value of loans that trade in the debt market. Now, last week, we looked at who borrows money from private, non-bank lenders, like mortgage funds and financing companies and even individual lenders. We saw that real estate developers are a common client because their financing needs often fall outside of the scope of what banks provide. Importantly, we established that private lending is not a market that's solely occupied by desperate borrowers. It's a common place for business owners and entrepreneurs to get financing. That conversation also introduced us to new types of mortgage loans. Mezzanine or bridge financing is a loan that usually has a term of under a couple of years. It's given to bridge a gap in a project. We used an example where a real estate developer called Jason took a mezzanine loan to pay for the construction of a commercial shopping center. Based on what we learned about central banks and interest rates, we also pointed out that bridge loans have less exposure to interest rate risk. That's because they have a relatively short maturity date. The other type of loan that we talked about in that episode was takeout financing. That's a loan that's used to pay off another lender. 
We illustrated that when Jason paid off his mezzanine loan with a long-term loan from a bank. All right, so before I get to questions from our listeners, let me just quickly tell you that this episode of Income Investing is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income provides financing to real estate investors, business owners, and entrepreneurs across the U.S. and Canada. We lend up to $250,000 for as long as three years. Get the capital you need to build your empire. You can visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-income.com. So today's question comes from Sam, who is in Michigan. Sam wanted to know what happens if a lender gives construction financing and then the project never gets completed. So Sam, you've hit the nail right on the head with this question. Construction financing is a mortgage loan that's used to pay for the construction of a real estate project. It's typically a short-term loan with a maturity date of under two years. Some of the biggest risks are unexpected delays or cost increases, which are quite common. And like you said, there's always the chance that the project never even materializes. Sam, from the lender's perspective, this is no different than any other mortgage deal. If the borrower, in this case the developer, doesn't repay the debt, then you can foreclose on the property. You would then try to sell it in order to get your money back. Now, one of the ways to protect yourself is to release the loan in tranches. For example, instead of giving a million dollars to the developer at once, you'd release a portion of it every two months based on how the property is progressing. That way you don't become overexposed and it also encourages the developer to keep costs down and the timeline in order. As well, like I've said in prior episodes, you should base your loan-to-value ratio on the current worth of the real estate. If it's just a big patch of grass, don't calculate your LTV as though a commercial structure has already been built on it. You should do it based on what it is. That way, if you have to foreclose, there's a better chance that you won't have an issue with recouping your funds. So thanks for your question, Sam. For everyone else that's listening, please feel free to let me know what's on your mind at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Your question does not have to be related to our current discussion. And if you're brand new to investing, Please don't worry about asking something that you think might be too simple. The whole idea with this podcast is to help people become better income investors. So let's get to the heart of today's show. Why would an entrepreneur borrow money instead of raise equity from investors? Why go into debt and even put your own property at risk if there's a mortgage involved? And by the way, what does it mean to raise equity? To illustrate our discussion, I want to revisit an example from last week. You'll recall that we talked about a real estate developer in Seattle called Jason. His goal was to buy a plot of land, turn it into a shopping center, and then lease it out to tenants. He and his investors put in $5 million, and they borrowed the remaining $10 million from three lenders, two banks and one private lender. So Jason used a combination of traditional bank financing, mezzanine financing, and takeout financing to get the deal done. Now, we didn't explore the project beyond 24 months. I think we all assumed that the development was successful and everyone made money. But the venture certainly came with some risk to Jason and his investors. First, like I said earlier, construction projects often come with delays. If there was anything serious, any of the lenders could have called in their loans and foreclosed on the property. 
Second, borrowing money means making interest payments, which added financial pressure to the deal. And as if that wasn't enough, Jason had to juggle between three different lenders and one group of investors to coordinate the financing. So why didn't Jason just raise $15 million from his investors and buy the property in cash? Why borrow money, make interest payments, and run the risk of foreclosure? Why would any entrepreneur, real estate or otherwise, go into debt if they don't have to? Well, one of the things that we noted from last week was that Jason used different lenders for different reasons. He used a bank to finance the acquisition of the land. He used a private lender to finance construction and the stabilization period. And he used a second bank to pay off the construction loan when that period ended. Each loan had its own characteristics and purposes. The same thing applies to equity financing, which is when investors pool their money together for ownership in a business. I talk about this extensively in my book, The Foundations of Investing, which you can get for free online at alexisasadi.net. For example, let's say that you and I started a business together. We each invested $10,000 into it, and we both got 50% of the company. The $20,000 that we collectively put into the company is called equity because it represents ownership. You and I are shareholders. We're not lending it to the company and charging interest. You and I are the business owners. Thus, any profits that the company earned would be split between us 50-50. And if the business failed, we would both lose our money. So, like loans, equity financing has its own distinct characteristics. First, it represents ownership, and therefore a division of profits and losses. If our business makes a $1 million profit, you and I will each make $500,000. That's a pretty good return on a $10,000 investment. And there's no limit to how much money you and I could make. It all depends on how well the business does. Now, as owners of the company, we also have voting rights. Among other things, we can vote on who will sit on the board of directors, which are the group of people who run the business. In our case, we would each have equal voting powers because we each own the company equally. There are other kinds of equity structures, which I won't get into now. But the point is that if an investor owns equity in a project, then that investor has some authority over the decision-making process. A loan, on the other hand, has a defined interest rate. There's a maximum that a lender can earn. And the lender doesn't own any part of the business, so it doesn't have any voting rights. Second, equity does not have to be repaid. It's an investment. If the business fails for legitimate reasons, there is very little recourse for investors. So if our company collapses, it just is what it is. Neither of us will have to pay each other back. We took a risk when we started our company, and it unfortunately just didn't pan out. Conversely, a loan has to be paid back no matter what. The only way out of it is bankruptcy. And third, equity financing comes with a lot more responsibility. For instance, if I'm the director of our business, so I sit on the board, I have a responsibility to always act in the interests of our shareholders, which in this case are you and me. If I make a negligent business decision, or if I use the company to unjustly enrich myself, you can take me to court for breaching my duties. However, a borrower's responsibility to a lender is just pretty much to pay back the loan. Therefore, there are three main types of capital. There's equity, and there's debt, And then there's a hybrid of the two, which we're not going to talk about today. So entrepreneurs will usually try to raise money based on a few factors. 
Number one, what makes the most sense financially? Number two, the level of responsibility they want. Number three, the level of risk they want to incur. And number four, whether it appeals to investors. So let's break these down a little bit more. One of the downsides of giving equity to investors is that they own a piece of the deal. That means there's less for the entrepreneur. A business owner might want to borrow money if they want to retain as much profit as possible. As a real-life example, Pacific Income recently loaned about $30,000 to a business that needed cash to finance production. Basically, the company is selling so much that it can't keep up with the demand, and it wants money to expand its operations. Instead of opening up the business to new equity investors and thus giving them some of the profits, they would rather borrow money at a fixed interest rate, which was 13.5% in their case. They calculated that making interest payments would be less expensive than giving up some of their future profits. For instance, let's say that they had gone to an equity investor and offered 5% of their company for that same $30,000. If the company later grew to a $20 million business, that investor's ownership would then be worth a million dollars because they would own 5% of it. Basically, the entrepreneurs would have accepted $30,000 and given up a $1 million stake in their business. By borrowing money from Pacific Income, they only have to pay 13.5% interest for it. They decided that the risk of borrowing money and having to pay it back no matter what made more financial sense than selling equity to someone else. As well, an entrepreneur may not want the burden of reporting to equity investors. If they don't want to answer questions or have to justify their business decisions, then borrowing money might be the better option. An equity investor or a shareholder usually has the right to know what you're doing. In extreme cases, equity investors can even fire the entrepreneur, which is what happened to Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, in 1985. A lender will leave you alone so long as you're good on your payments. Further, an entrepreneur might borrow money to limit their exposure to risk. In Jason's case, he and his equity partners invested $5 million. The remaining $10 million was financed by lenders. In the worst-case scenario, if the deal imploded, they would lose $5 million, not $15 million. And finally, the entrepreneur will also consider whether the structure of the deal is appealing to potential investors. If investors wanted a fixed rate of return that's backed up by real estate, then the entrepreneur might raise capital by borrowing money and securing it with a mortgage. If investors wanted to undertake more risk and be compensated with a share in the profits, then the entrepreneur might offer equity. And if they wanted a combination of the two, then the entrepreneur might give a blended investment opportunity. So the point that I want to make in this episode is that there are different kinds of money. Debt, equity, and a blend of the two. Each has its own unique characteristics and can thus fit into different areas of a business venture. Jason probably decided to raise $5 million of equity for three reasons. First, he calculated that it would make more mathematical sense to have lenders finance the rest of the deal. It usually does in real estate. Second, it would limit his and his investors' risk. And third, all parties involved, lenders and equity investors, could make money in the deal. I want you to keep this in mind because we're eventually going to transition into investment funds, like mortgage, income, and credit funds. These are businesses that give or otherwise invest in loans, but the investors are shareholders and thus own equity in them. 
This is going to matter a lot for due diligence, which I'll talk about extensively once we get into it. So I'm going to wrap it up here today. Next week, we're going to talk about how lenders can add additional security for their loans above and beyond mortgages. Until then, please be sure to check out my online course called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. It's available at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Just scroll down to the bottom of the page and click the link. Thanks as always for spending your time with me, and I'll see you next Wednesday.